Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the September 18th, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. 49 days till the midterm elections. Everybody knows their role here with getting registration cleared because there's still some pretty serious, bad, non-enfranchised news out there. State primaries are over. I'm going. I'm back from the uh, Global Climate Action Summit and a handful of affiliated events. There were so many. I'll answer your questions after class. Still might be a good idea to give 202-224-5225 a dial to your senators about your thoughts on the Kavanaugh confirmation process. Today, UCI professor Daniel Gillen will cover all facets of the upcoming 29th annual Alzheimer's Conference. It's held this Friday, right around the corner. And then, in the second segment, Patricia Martz, anthropologist and board president of the California Cultural Resources Preservation Alliance, has ample opportunities for exploring the civilizations over which we've settled our subdivisions. First is the California Cultural Resource Preservation Alliance's 30th anniversary celebration this Sunday, September 23rd, and the others ancestral walks on October 7th. We'll be right back after a short station break. Thank you for staying tuned. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Daniel Gillen, UCI faculty member and core leader of UCI's Minds, that's Memory Impairment and Neurological Disorders Data Management Statistics Core. He is one of the presenters at this year's 29th Southern California Alzheimer's Disease Research Conference. And more details we'll talk about where and when, because there's always room at that inn, folks. Daniel's work is published in nearly 120 articles, probably more uh, since we last checked. He served over the years on the Data Monitoring and Scientific Advisory Committee, as well as governmental regulatory boards and scientific advisory sections. His research interests include, and this is the, the biggest mouthful for me, folks, survival analysis, longitudinal data analysis, clinical trials, sequential testing, and epidemiologic methods. This man lives and stays in the weeds. He first taught at the University of Chicago, then he joined Remains at UCI since 2004, now with his joint appointments, including Department of Statistics and the Department of Epidemiology. Daniel completed his Bachelor's of Science in Mathematics at Cal Poly Obispo and his Master's and PhD in Biostatistics at the University of Washington. He comes to us today from his nearby campus office, and we can hear the stats just wheeling, whirring from where he is, putting together his final slides for this Friday, and who knows what else. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Daniel Gillen. Oh, I thank you, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be here, and I uh, thank you for the invitation. Oh, yes, indeed. Well, let's start with you, 
telling us about your work. It's highly technical, hyper quantitative, very specific. I'm not going to even try to capture it from my lay lips to our lay listeners' ears. So can you sort of in a nutshell make this as accessible as you can? Uh, certainly, I can try. It's it's a, a little more highfalutin than maybe it is even. So my, my work has always started off in statistical methodology for the design and analysis of, of clinical trials, which, as you've mentioned, is, is the topic that's overriding uh, yes. this year's uh, Alzheimer's disease, so Southern California Conference. And so my work there has really been devoted to truly protecting the ethics of public health through clinical trials design. And what I mean by that is an ethical clinical trial design is a clinical trial design that answers a specific question and does that efficiently, meaning that it's done efficiently to minimize the number of patients that are exposed to experimental treatments and to come to conclusions as quickly as possible if we've reached confidence in favor of a decision that we can actually you're benefit a little the bit, general um, population. You're a little bit uh, clicking out. Are you right there? I am right oh, here. Okay. So then is this deeply collaborative with all the research being done in centers all around the country, all around the world? It, it truly is. You know, I think that one of the beauties of being a statistician truly yes. is that you get to play in other people's sandboxes, so to speak. And so I've worked with multiple individuals across the country, as well as on multiple international clinical trials as well. And so it really affords us the, the ability to do that work from Alzheimer's disease-specific context as you well know, our Alzheimer's disease research center that's here and part of UCI Mind at UCI is part of a national network that's funded by the NIH yes. of Alzheimer's disease centers. And so we actually collaborate. Each of our centers collects what we call uniform data across our cohorts, and that gives us the ability to pool data to be able to analyze in a more efficient manner and in a more precise manner different biomarkers and potential outcomes and intervention strategies that impact early stages and late stages of Alzheimer's disease. And so I am I'm very fortunate to be a part of the center here, and most definitely we are collaborative across the country and globally. So do you then have a particular perspective and a way of detecting patterns and trends that's unique to the researchers right around you. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I would like to, to characterize my approach really as, as a principled approach, and I would hope that my colleagues and collaborators would feel that way as well. And what I mean by that is we live in a, a quote-unquote big data age. That's yeah. what you would read in all the newspapers, and it is true. We have we've come to a point technologically where we can collect massive amounts of data on just about anything um, from the, the color of shirt that you're ordering today and, and, or to your genetic makeup. And so what I try and do and my philosophy in general in statistics, and I think it's a good one, is to, to really you have to bring scientific knowledge into the modeling process. We've often heard the term, let the data speak for themselves. Well, the data mm -hmm. will speak for themselves, but that doesn't limit the impact of scientific knowledge in trying to guide that process. And so any area that I've worked in, and I, I currently work mostly in Alzheimer's disease, but I've also been director of statistics for our cancer center, which is a national cancer center here at UCI, and also worked a lot in nephrology, I've always felt the need to have a very good understanding of the mechanistic and biological processes dictating the work that I'm on. And so as an example of, of this, 
a lot of my work these days, which is brought forward and motivated by clinical trials design in AD, is focused on biomarker development. Yeah. And we're, so, yes, we'll, we're, we're going to talk about that. But I, but for still in a general sense, that if you could, and I'm not asking you to project beyond where we are now, but could you plot a line on the graph? How how would you show the inroads? the general progress made in Alzheimer's research to date? Sure. I think that uh, if, if you look at it, certainly there is a positive slope, and I, I would hope that that line actually is not linear, as described. Um, it, it's, it's, it's somewhat exponential and going up. And if you think about, you know, we had some early successes in late-stage Alzheimer's disease with cholinesterase inhibitors, um, things like denopazil and galantamine and treatment there. And we've had fewer successes in early Alzheimer's disease, but I think that what we have had and what is crucial is to set the foundation is a refinement of early biomarkers within the disease process and a refinement of clinical estimates of disease progression as we go through. And those are key because in order to develop effective treatments, of course, we need to be able to determine if those treatments are actually working to stave off the progression of disease. And so I think as we move through time, what you have seen over the last couple of years is a real advancement and our ability to refine those outcomes that we would use in clinical trials and also to refine the pathways that we are targeting from a biomarker process to intervene earlier on in the disease process. So the, the graph would have to show where there's early onset intervention and later onset sorts of treatments. And so there would have to be a multiple, a multitude of lines on that graph. It all depends on when the intervention begins. Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, one of the talks that we will have at the yes. conference is thinking about the concept of primary versus secondary prevention, which is categorized as primary being before any biomarkers are presented with inside of an individual, whereas secondary is after biomarkers are present to try and slow down the progression of disease. Well, now this is going to beg a definition about what a biomarker is. I thought a biomarker was your own genetic makeup, which has nothing to do with any sort of presentation of any kind of disease. Yeah, no. So we use biomarkers. So a classic biomarker, for example, in Alzheimer's disease would be um, amyloid beta. So yes. uh, Alzheimer's disease is characterized by plaques and tangles within the brain. So amyloid beta and tau, which are proteins right. that build up inside of the brain. And so truly a biomarker there that we have come to rely upon and certainly has made a lot of news lately is amyloid beta, for example, um, which we can measure through cerebral spinal fluid as well as through PET scans with inside of the brain. And so, yeah, so the, the term biomarker, I tend to actually think of much more generally, to be quite honest. It's yes. not just genetics. It's far beyond that. Right, right. I mean, it's, so that right there sheds, puts the light on how very complex all of these factors are with the manifestation of Alzheimer's. So let's bring us, would you, to the leading edge of the Federal Drug Administration's consideration of guidelines around, quoting, developing drugs for the treatment of early stage disease and uh, it bringing out testing cognition along with the biomarkers. What can you tell us uh, you're dealing with in, in that, those guidelines coming out and how, how it's going to benefit what you're doing, benefiting all of us? Absolutely. And I, I view this as very much along those when you asked about the trajectory yes. of how we're doing in research. This is a product of a lot of that hard work and that trajectory in research is to refine the way that we go about designing clinical trials and who our target populations are. And so what the FDA did was they released draft guidance, which they commonly do for multiple disease areas, but they did this for early Alzheimer's disease trials. And this was in February of 2018 that this was released. 
And they essentially started with a very logical perspective. They said, let us begin with thinking about the target population that we want to consider treating, realizing that people will be at different stages of disease as they move along. And so they really have four, in the early AD setting, they have four stages that they characterized potential patients as. The first would be those that just show a biomarker effect, for example, amyloid buildup um, or decreases in spinal fluid or buildup in the brain, but having no evidence of a clinical impact. So in other words, the patient themselves isn't experiencing anything that they can feel, so to speak. Okay. The second stage is to have both a biomarker as well as subtle detectable abnormalities um, on sensitive neuropsychological measures, Um, so cognitive or memory impairment. But the key here is that that second stage does not involve functional impairment. In other words, there's no impairment in being able to turn on the coffee maker in the morning um, or to be able to balance a checkbook, to do hobbies and skills and things like that. And then the third stage is a little bit more severe, which is a biomarker plus memory and cognitive impairment and mild but detectable functional impairment, where you're now the patient is starting or the individual is starting to experience difficulty in doing kind of activities of daily living, if you will. Right. And then the fourth stage is overt dementia. Um, but the key on those four stages, and the reason why it's so important that these have come about, is because, of course, if you're trying to do prevention and you start off with a group of individuals that have no functional impairment, no treatment is going to show a benefit in functional impairment or it's very unlikely to do that because you already have no functional impairment. So you're comparing essentially zero to zero right. unless you follow patients for an extremely long amount of time. And so the guidance has really come out to say, well, okay, if you're talking about a very early stage, then we'll begin to accept benefit of the treatment on just the biomarkers that appear to be present. In other words, can you reduce those biomarkers or stop them from growing, if you will, as a function of time? And so that guidance is really critical for individuals designing clinical trials and sponsors that want to enter this area because it gives a little bit more, uh, if you will, direction in the types of outcomes that could be acceptable and the types of benefits Mm -hmm. that should be shown in a clinical trial setting so that we can obtain reasonable treatments in these patients. And the ethical implications in all of that. It's Well, so the precision and the personalized medicine, it is, as you're saying, it's effective in targeting treatment for individuals, but I'd like to get at some of the, at the sort of um, the equity issues. It's sort of, is this just for anybody who can afford it, but the rest are going to have to, you know, have to just deal with? How are you con- sort of folding the equity aspects into covering all patients in our society's needs? Yeah, that's, an, that's a very good question. And, and the concept of now of precision medicine, while you could characterize some of the staging even as getting more precise in the type of patient, when now when we begin to talk about the concept of precision medicine, um, it's careful to get the terminology down. Right. We are starting now to talk about genetic makeup as well as contextual and societal effects on, on the patient. Um, And so when we start to get into precision medicine, you're absolutely correct. There becomes a concern about health disparities. Um, And there's really actually an interesting article that just came out this year um, by Shanita Halbert in the American Journal of Medical Genetics. And, you know, what she had done was said, what is going to be the impact of precision medicine where we need to know kind of genetic makeup in order to tailor therapies for individuals? 
Um, and what is the impact of that on, on minority populations? And there are really some interesting uh, uh, facts that, that, that come out of this. And, and, you know, one of them is that if you think back historically in a timeline, from 2009, about 96% of the GWAS studies that have been done were in populations of European descent. Yeah. So only 4% of non-European descent at that point. In 2016, it's gotten much better. About 19% of the GWAS studies have been done in underrepresented populations. But obviously, if you're going to develop precision and personalized medicine around genetic makeups of individuals, you're going to have to have information on those individuals. And kind of a classic example here would be, for example, in breast cancer, where we had BRCA1 and 2, which we started for clinically testing in 1995, but it wasn't until 2009 that we had sufficient empirical data on underrepresented minorities to be able to put forth meaningful risk estimates based around BRCA1 and 2. And so that's really a barrier to personalized medicine and, yes. and, and health disparities in underrepresented minorities. So how are we dealing with this and how are we going to deal with it? I think the NIH is very much on top of it. Okay. I think that in, in July, what they've done to kind of put their money where their mouth is, the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities allocated $50 million to try and develop new analytic techniques for contextualizing health disparities um, and personalized medicine in underrepresented populations. And they've also, part of that initiative is to identify new biomarkers that are specific to diverse populations. And so the idea is to build up there the amount of data that we have in terms of GWAS studies okay. in order to allow for that personalized medicine to kind of translate across the border. But it is an issue that we have to deal with. We have to deal with it. So for those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Daniel Gillen. He's a UCI faculty member and core leader of UCI Minds Data Management Statistics Corps. He's one of the presenters at this year's 29th annual Southern California Alzheimer's Disease Research Conference. Well, Daniel, the central theme you're striking this year, it's about clinical trials. We've talked about that a little bit. What they get done will be visited by a range of clinicians who want to expand our understanding, putting so-called failures in a broader perspective. How is it in yours? This is the lay question. This is so easy to ask, but it's, it boggles my mind. How, in your estimation, is this conference manages to reach both lay and professional clinical healthcare provider audiences so effectively? Yeah, Claudia. So I, I think it comes down to, to fantastic organization and, and choice of speakers in, in this domain. I think if you look at the range of speakers and topics, we'll talk about these them. are yeah. individuals that are very good at contextualizing and speaking from experience. And I think that it, it's very easy to communicate uh, tough ideas and, and complex notions to individuals when you talk about actual experiences that we've observed in practice. And I think that that's really a key here. And certainly there are parts of the program that really are, you know, let's get the participant perspective. For example, Professor Joshua Grill is going to lead a panel that's going to be on participant perspectives and study partner perspectives on how to choose clinical trials. Um, and so it's really trying to give the gambit, if you will, of how trials have, what the historic or the natural history of them have developed in AD research what the utility of them are, and then what they mean and bring back to the patient at the end of the day, and ultimately public health. And so I think that it's a lineup that, while ambitious in trying to meet all of those objectives, I think that the speakers that are given there and the topics that are going to be presented will certainly be accessible to both audiences. 
So this uh, question just now occurs to me is, now, I, and I know we haven't met at these conferences in the past, but I know you've been in that room with everybody. Is there a dividend to getting those different audiences, the, the lay and the professional people in the same room? Are, are you, do you get a lot out of that yourself as a professional? Absolutely. Absolutely. You need to hear and you want feedback and you want to touch and reach with your knowledge, both audiences, because we cannot do this in a silo. Researchers alone cannot do this work. Patients alone cannot do this work. We need to be working together, and there needs to be a common understanding of the goals and the scientific goals and the rationale behind the decisions that we make as we're developing trials, because that helps patients to understand the recruitment process and to understand what they gain from a trial and also what they're devoting to a trial when they go in. And so absolutely it is critical to have both audiences. Well, I just don't mind dropping some of the details. People put it at, put your pens to your calendar. If you don't already have your ticket for this day long, it's going to be this Friday, the 21st. That's this Friday, and it will be at the Irvine Marriott Hotel at 18000 Von Carmen Avenue. The mingling begins at 7.30 in the morning, and talks begin at around 8 o'clock. In the morning, then it goes on till about four. And so headlining begins with the inestimable Frank LaFerla and Joshua Grill and Jim McAleer with the Alzheimer's Association. The, all three of them will sort of open this. I don't know if you have anything to say about what they will be bringing to the sort of introductory aspect. Um, I think that more, more so that this will be a formal introduction to the speakers to kind of try and set the tone, if you will, yeah. for the rest of the day. Okay. And so next then, the, as a, a panel or a lecture provider here, what we've learned and where we're going will be physician Jeffrey Cummings from the Cleveland Clinic, Ruvo Center for Brain Health. What, what will he offer? Sure. Dr. Cummings, first of all, for, for those that, that may not be aware of him, is, is, a, is a true leader in the field. In fact, all of these speakers that are, yeah. I feel very humbled to be speaking with all of them. But um, Dr. Cummings is really going to talk about kind of where we've come and what we've learned in clinical trials. And he, he's going to make a very critical distinction, which is the difference between, say, a failed clinical trial and a failed drug. In other words, if a drug isn't shown to be efficacious, that doesn't mean the clinical trial failed. As long as we've learned something along the pipeline, then that's the important aspect of this. And so he's going to talk about the keys to maintaining a successful clinical trial, whether or not the drug is shown to be successful at the end of the day, um, would remain to be seen. And the next will be presented by yours, you, yours truly, yours, how clinical trials work. You've talked a little bit about that, but did you want to expand a little bit there? I will, just a bit. You know, I, I get the fun aspect of this. I almost get to teach what I, I might paraphrase as a little bit of clinical trials 101 for folks. And really my goal here is to, through example, illustrate why clinical trials are really our gold standard for establishing cause and effect and determining whether uh, therapies are efficacious. And then to, to highlight the most important aspects of clinical trials, things like randomization and blinding and selection of the appropriate patient population. And again, part of my goal here is to get both practitioners as well as potential participants a solid understanding of why we need to undergo randomization, because it's a foreign concept for some individuals, and why we need to know uh, go about blinding where an individual does not know what type of drug that they're on. And a lot of that will show through experiences that we've had in the past, and I'll try and provide examples there of the, the importance of these concepts. Well, that whole blinding and all, and, and but it's complicated by the fact, and Joshua Grills talked about that before, with the 
you know, the ethics of you have a screening criteria and whether the screening criteria will reveal some biomarker that is a super delicate biomarker for the patient, for the clinical participant to understand, it's hugely fraught with ethical issues. Absolutely. And part of the ethics there is that, you know, we are still learning ourselves about the utility of those biomarkers. And that's part of the dilemma here. And that's part of the trial and research process. But absolutely. Okay. Well, that is you talking. And then the next will, um, after you, will be the clinical trials for behavioral symptoms uh, presented by Constantine. You can help me with this. Leketosos? Leketosos, yes. Okay. Uh, From... Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Yes. So he will be talking on a very key aspect of of the program, which is the challenges that we're facing in clinical trials where we're trying to develop neuropsychiatric, or we're trying to treat, I'm sorry, neuropsychiatric symptoms that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. And so um, really the goal there is to try and describe potential trial designs that may be more beneficial for drugs in this particular area. So that'll be a very interesting component of the program. Okay. Then following is the the clinical trials of dietary interventions, which is very cool. And I know Dr. Uh, Cotman keeps talking about the Mediterranean diet and or, or and others about you know what do eat what your mother told you to eat. But uh, this will be a, a not, not on a much higher level. Is Martha Claire Morris from Rush University Medical Center? Tell us about that section. Absolutely. So Dr. Morris is very interested in lifestyle interventions. And again, one of the key challenges in all of clinical trials design, but truly in this area, is how we select outcome measures in those areas and how we, you know, because a a clinical trial can only run over a finite period of time. So you have to have an outcome measure that's sensitive enough to be detectable over a finite period of time. So as we think about lifestyle interventions like exercise, like diet, one of the challenges there is what are the best types of outcomes that we might be looking at? It usually isn't going to be the direct, say, weight loss, for example, because, of course, we care here about cognition going forward in time. And so it's a real challenge that she's going to focus on. Okay. Well, and, I mean, dietary interventions, well, I I guess somebody's hand may raise, but, but are just what occurs to me right now is it could also be when you're eating, are you benefiting from the, a social component of when you're eating? I mean, that whole thing. There certainly is a component of that, and I think that there is a huge social aspect to a lot of the preventative care that we can talk about. Um, and certainly that is an aspect there. But one of the beauties that we have, assuming that everyone is still eating to some degree, there is randomization. And so that's kind of part of the key of the clinical trial design is that hopefully if we're trying to isolate the the impact of diet, for example, we are balancing on the socialization aspect across those groups right. without intervening on them. Okay. Yep. And you already, you mentioned a little bit about what Joshua Grill is going to talk about, how to choose a clinical trial, the patient's, the participant's perspective. Did you have anything more to add to that? No, other than the fact that I think that this is a, a really crucial component of of the day's talks. And I, I think hearing the experiences of participants and hearing the experiences of their study partners who are required for these trials as well um, firsthand and their, their knowledge can help to inform both healthcare providers as well as potential participants about the questions that should be asked and the knowledge that should be transmitted. So I think that's a very critical component of the day. Okay. 
I always look forward to hearing from you. Um, yeah. Alzheimer's Disease Prevention Clinical Trials, Dr. Mary Sano from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, I guess New York City. What do you expect will come from her section? Yeah, so Dr. Sano is going to, again, speak about prevention trials, and we talked about this a little bit earlier. Yes. She's going to kind of distinguish between primary and secondary prevention and the subtleties that, that, that occur in there. And we talked a little bit about it with the FDA guidance in terms of right. are we trying to prevent the occurrence of even biomarkers, so people that are completely normal with no sign of a biomarker, or are we trying to treat individuals that maybe have the existence of a biomarker and then trying to limit the progression of that or even eliminate it at some level? So that will be a very key, key talk. So, do, I mean, do you expect to sort of, they're circling back to what other panels are talking about and her circling back to that splitting, breaking up then with different ethnicities represented in, in her research? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would imagine that there's going to be a critical component here across the board of representative populations and making sure that we have generalizable results at the end of the day. And I think that will be a common theme that you're going to see at the end of the day. Okay, good. I'm looking forward to that. And then Jason Carlos, he was here to talk about his historic book, the, his 19th Century Physicians Clinical Trial. Some Several years ago, he will be pretty much wrapping it up with redefining Alzheimer's disease, the role of clinical trials. It's not just that the clinical trials, not just treating diseases, but as he said to me directly in preparation for this, but defining them and what are the clinical and cultural consequences of that using Alzheimer's as the case study. More to add. Yeah, so first I would say that uh, it's a real treat to, yes. to watch uh, Dr. Karlowish speak. He's quite an eloquent speaker, as you very, very well know. And I think that, you know, what he's going to do is give a very unique perspective on how our treatment of other diseases has really impacted, obviously, the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease because we have a growing patient population and how that's changed the landscape of trial designs and now in, in defining Alzheimer's disease and clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease. And so part of what Jason will talk about, I'm sure, is going to be the disclosure, for example, of biomarkers, as you yes. had mentioned earlier, right. and the ethical issues that are developed around that and, and how those ethics might change as we learn more and more about the biomarkers that we're studying. Well, and that, that about brings it to a wrap for the, the roster, and there'll be, I guess, a little time for people to, to continue to mingle. There's a few in, uh, networking breaks in there, but that's, there's a lot to mind there. I want to give, uh, I don't know if you have it handy, I've got the clinical trial phone number for people to dial and the, uh, the website that I'll put on the, the podcast summary as well. Shall, you, shall I run that by? That would be fantastic. Okay. The the clinical trials, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the number to dial, it's at the area, our area, local area code 949-824-0008. You can also email research at mind.uci.edu for any inquiries. I guess, I mean, there's 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 qualifying ages and conditions and that kind of a thing, but every everybody should give them a call. That's a call to action, which I we sort of we trying to try not to do directly, sort of indirectly. If you were interested, you should call this number. So, well, I want to, I had more questions about the success of some new drugs out, but the, in the interest of time, I'm going to save that for another interview that maybe you will come back and do. I, you did such a, you, your delivery was amazing. I really appreciate doing this. I, never... uh, I, I have really enjoyed it, and I would love to talk to you about some of the, the recent um, news that has come out on, on early phase trials for AD. Okay, so that would be fantastic. Let's do that right after the elections, around Thanksgiving. We'll be thankful for these great findings. So thank you, 
Daniel Gillen, for being on the show today. Thank you very much, Claudia, and we look forward to seeing a lot of your listeners out at the uh, conference. Yes, folks, you need to know that there's always room at the inn, as I was saying, so please be sure to call. My guest was Daniel Gillen, UCI faculty member and core leader of UCI's Minds Data Management Statistics Corps and presenter at this year's 29th Southern California Alzheimer's Disease Research. We'll be right back after station break with Patricia Martz, anthropologist and saving our cultural resources under our very nose. We'll be right back after a short break. Thank you for staying tuned. That was Naftali's Dream, the first track, sitting in some train watching the Tuscan landscape go by. Well, welcome back to Ask a Leader. My second segment, my guest is the, uh, she's Patricia Martz, anthropologist and founding board president of California Cultural Resource Preservation Alliance, a nonprofit organization of archaeologists, concerned citizens, historians, and Native Americans working together to promote the protection and preservation of cultural sites. This alliance was founded in 1998 along with the late Lillian Robles, a Juanino and Akchacheman later elder, and you will tell me, how do I pronounce that, Patricia? Ahashaman. Ahashaman. Thank you so much. The last thing I want to do is slaughter <laughs> a slaughtered people's tribal name. So true. Oh, yes. <clears throat> Patricia was an archaeologist at the Los Angeles District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, a Corps Engineers uh, construction agency whose jurisdiction is in the flood zones and other water-related domains. And as a grad student, she learned her professor's moniker for the agency was the Corpse of Engineers because they dammed up all the major rivers. A considerable feat of hers was the preservation of a major rock art site and the construction of an, a cultural interpretive center near Phoenix, Arizona. Now Professor Emerita, Anthropology and Archaeology at California State University, Los Angeles, Patricia was has been principal investigator for the San Nicolas Island Archaeological Research Program, which provided archaeological field training, research, and publication opportunities and jobs for students underrepresented in archaeology. Huge, huge political piece there. Patricia served as chairman and prehistoric archaeologist for the State Historical Resources Commission and chairperson of the State Historical Resources Source Commission's um, Curation Committee, and co-chair of the California Preservation Tax Force Subcommittee on Archaeology. Having conducted archaeological investigations in California for over 40 years, Patricia completed though her BA at California State University Long Beach and her PhD at UC Riverside. She joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Patricia. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's, whoever that person is sounds wonderful. <laughs> well, and that wonderful person is right here. So let's, I, I just have this kind of wide-eyed start to this. Is, is archaeology considered social science or humanities or it's both? Um, it's, it's both, but what it is, it's anthropology. And anthropology is a holistic discipline that includes archaeology, the study of past human behavior, cultural anthropology, the study of behavior 
all the time, physical anthropology and linguistics. So those four are all part of this holistic study of anthropology. So in the introduction, I mentioned what your your faculty member when you were a grad student, how that that may have influenced you. I, I'd like to know, so you're a professional in this. Do you have any sort of Native American skin in this game, or is it something that came out of your graduate training that led you to see the urgency of devoting the rest of your life to this? Well, um, I taught Indians of California and Indians of North America, and in doing that teaching, I learned so much about the genocide and, and the destruction of, of their culture and their cultural traditions, and so it made me want to really help because I, there's no repatriation for them other than skeletal remains. You know, it's almost like throwing them a bone instead of doing things for... That's oh, it's a horrible pun. It is. It's terrible, I know. <laughs> but, but that's what it is. Yeah. Instead of giving medical care or, or, you know, doing something to restore them. One of the problems is the uh, non-federally recognized Native American groups. And California has a lot of them because all the all the treaties giving them reservations and and uh, federal recognition were broken. So when you were listening to the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, you heard Senator Hirono from Hawaii bring that right. very detail up. Right. I don't think people even were figuring that. But she must have been uh, telegraphing to her colleague in Alaska, wait, we've got a real jurisdictional catastrophe that could be uh, uh, critical to us. Right. Okay, well, there it is, folks. It's playing right there in that sensationalized now uh, process system underway. So so that's your connection. You founded and you continue to lead the California Cultural Resource Preservation Alliance. Tell us about the the nation's Juaneño, and I'm going to please say it again. A Hushman. A Hushman with whom you're involved. Is this an unusual collaboration? Yes, it, um Today it's getting better, but there was a time when there was a, a lot of distrust between archaeologists and Native Americans, mostly on the Native American side. And uh, it's I've still been, there. I yeah, heard that. It, I heard it that is a global climate yeah, action. Yeah, it is. It, there's there's a lot of distrust. So, so we're very happy about the fact that we were able to work together with the Ahashiman Juaneño and even the uh, Gabrieleno Tongva to try to work together on a common goal. We, I figured, okay, we don't get along in some other ways, but if we can all work together to preserve the sites and instead of digging them up, you know, th then we have a common ground and we can work together. When I mm -hmm. had a, a Native American a film documentary producer, uh, Angela Baca, was talking about Bears Ears, and there was a very unusual collaboration between tribes, and that's what I was trying to get at here, is mm -hmm. the collaboration in, inter-tribe, if that was also unusual, because there, there may be a whole different way each tribe has with, with dealing with policy and culture and all that kind of thing, but was that unusual to see their collaboration yes, with each other? Right, yeah. Okay, so, and I think we need to break it down to that to understand, mm -hmm. appreciate when, when tribes come together, that's really signaling a lot of effort and humility and urgency and, and their, respect yeah, and res oh absolutely well so we, we've talked about how some there, there's a kind of reappropriation issue that Native Americans have about European background archaeologists involved so we can 
keep that for people to con- keep considering. Well, coming from some really interesting panels at last week's Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco were some refrains that bear every bit of uh, the, you know your work here. Indigenous people are by their nature, highly effective stewards of all of their resources, they're kind of ready to take the call from activists and regulators as to proper management to avoid the calamities like the forest fire. So what kinds of climate action rules, um, practices, are you sort of working into your uh, your alliances sort of teachings to the, the local constituents. Well, I'd like to go back to the preservation issue. Yes. Because this feeds into this, because archaeological sites uh, hold thousands of years of human history. And the only tangible remains of the lives of the ancestors who thrived here for thousands of years and successfully adapted to many of the environmental changes are these sites. And so... They faced climate change, drought, sea level rise. In fact, in uh, tree ring data indicates that there was a 150-year drought in California between A.D. 1100 and 1250. If you can imagine, a 150-year drought. And yet these people were successful in, in surviving all this and thriving. How, how can you tell they succeeded? Because there's no break in the... In yeah, the kinds the, of wares that are sort of accumulated over that time? There's no break in the sites during that time. They're no. still occupied. How does that look? How, does that, how can you see no break in the sites? Well, we have dates, you know, radiocarbon dates from, Correct. from the different sites. And so looking at dates through time, we can see that people were still here and still wow. surviving. Wow. That's I don't think any of us can get our minds wrapped around that. But, and especially with our consumption, we just, we don't know what, can't grasp that at all. Of course, all. there weren't that many people around either. No, I'm it's sure a lot easier it down. To, right, yeah. there was a, the, a lot smaller group, and as rain of water returned to the area that there, the, the prosperity raised the, the population. And no it. concrete to keep the rain from, that what that did come from seeping into the groundwater. So That's right. The groundwater was recharged as soon as the rain restored. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah, we're <laughs> we're sort of well, and that's what we're doing now. We're trying, we're re-engineering the entire Los Angeles basin mm-hmm. now for retaining the water to recharge the groundwater. Right. Sort of, it's be- so so we could learn could have learned that from the past. Well, what I remember <laughs> from the Yosemite excursion, I think we talked a little bit about that in mm-hmm. preparation for this interview, was the Native American lecture was about the messy practices of the white man of the Europeans in the Yosemite Valley that, that they allowed for too much understory and that's the fuel for these right. massive fires so fire management not just protracted drought survival but the, the those other practices come into that so talk about the extent to which excavation of cultural artifacts is being modern what what are the requirements for you know the state and federal uh, who owns those relics and how and how they're unearthed? Well, break it all the way down. Hopefully, we, right now they're only unearthed when a site is going to be completely destroyed, and the artifacts belong to the property owner in the United States. In Mexico, the artifacts belong to the federal government, and the federal government is the in Mexico. That is the 
sort of the archaeological, it's the public domain right. for public research and for public exhibitions and things like that. Right. And so are there, they're studied in those places, in, in the state-run uh, cultural uh, archaeological institutions in Mexico, but are, are they mainly in the back, do you know, or are the constituents able to see much of what is unearthed in Mexico? Oh yes, they're you know they have their museums and and yes. uh, so th- there's a lot of good archaeology going on in Mexico. I know there's that outstanding one, Mexico City. But so, but in, that's our public good loss in this country that it is a private asset, as it were. It's a private treasury that the artifacts become then that are found in the United States. What a loss! Well, if they're in p- public land, then they belong. To the public, right? Okay, but it's private land. But it's difficult, though. That even and I'm maybe you want to say a little bit about the current administration's allocation of resources to secure relics on public lands. Well, certainly, you know, there's a big problem with uh, with protecting the lands, and in protecting the lands, you're protecting the sites and you're protecting the artifacts. So. Yeah, it's a big problem, and okay. we're very concerned about it. As far you asked about monitoring, yes, and uh, monitoring actually isn't required in the laws, but it is something that is done these days, and it's you know it's something that should should be done, and so there are monitoring firms, Native American monitoring yes. companies that monitor archaeological sites, and Archaeological sites, when there's a threat of development, then under the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, it requires that the land be surveyed to see if there are cultural resources there, archaeological sites, and then they have to be evaluated. And if they're significant, then they have to do mitigation. And too often, mitigation instead of what CEQA says in their guidelines, says that preservation is the most important uh, uh, mitigation through avoidance and uh, maybe capping a site or uh, putting it into a conservation area or doing without one house and saving a cemetery. It's kind of like the carbon point about leaving it in the ground. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we want it left in the ground because archaeology as it's practiced today is destructive. You know, we're we're still digging with shovels and things and if we can preserve these sites in 50 years from now or even sooner, we'll have the remote sensing capability where we can be in a hovercraft over the site and see all the see what's below the ground with and the- see where to surgically excavate just to answer important questions. In fact, in Egypt, they found an entire chariot factory that way. Wow. And that it, was pretty recent. That was not too long ago. Yeah. And it wow. was a, a big sand area. and There was nothing on the surface, but they had heard rumors of there being something there. And if the archaeologists had excavated the way they do, you know, uh, with our current state of the art, it would have taken lifetimes to find this stuff. But by using the remote sensing, they were able to find out it was a chariot factory and and just do a little bit of excavation to groundproof the data. Unfortunately, the remote sensing that we are ha- have access to 
Uh, we can't really do that without structures. You know, we can't do a, a shell midden, for example. Of which? A, sh a shell midden. Okay. A sh all along the coast, there are those piles of shell yes. that the Native Americans were using as part of their subsidence. And they also include artifacts and, you know, it, it's their dump. And, you know, just as if we went to our dump today, we could learn a lot about past our right. past cultures, oh, yes. like the pop top people, as uh, as opposed to the church key people, and right, 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 things like that. So that then begs to a, sort of a general question that I always wonder about. And if you could give us your best way of appreciating how much and where and the, how the contours of the uh, how our topography might hint at how much civilization is right under every single subdivision every bit of infrastructure that you're talking about the 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 shell mitten but there's i mean if we can understand that this area had a very prosperous civilization with the the clement not inclement the clement weather and the abundant seashore resources that there there's all kinds of you know civilization that was left behind and it that has been that we're building over so can we recognize like some of the some mounds you can do that in sort of lesser built out areas you know in central america but can you tell us what 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 are we on sitting on top of we're not even paying any attention well a lot of the like things, right here a lot of the things that we were sitting on top of um, have been destroyed unfortunately to make way for all this development and, you know, an example is the 9,000-year-old site. We'll talk about all yeah. those at the walks. So yeah. we'll, we'll do that. But, but is yeah. there a gen I mean, is, can you say from, from the water's edge all the way into maybe the Cleveland National Forest that, that all, every bit of that would have been, we'll call them Native American subdivisions and, and, and heaps of cultural uh, right. relics were ha would have been all over? Yeah. Uh, yes, it, the area was densely populated, and even in... And er mean, do you have an idea what you mean by dense? Well, at the time of European contact, yes. California had the densest population, the largest population in uh, north of Mexico. There were 310,000 Native Americans that's estimated at the time of European contact, and it didn't take too long till that was whittled down to 20,000. That's a... An enormous violence. Yes. It's a, a violent scenario there. Well, for those of you who just joined us, my guest is Patricia Martz. She's an anthropologist, and she's founding member and board president currently of the California Cultural Resource Preservation Alliance. And we are talking about the work they're doing. We need to get right into that with what is coming up. There will be on this Sunday, September 23rd, from 10 to 3 at the Moot Interpretive Center at Upper Bay Newport Preserve on, uh, well, everybody knows where that is, the Upper Newport Bay at the top there, 2301 University Drive in Newport Beach. And if you could talk uh, a bit about what people should expect by showing up there. I mean, is there a program from 10 to 3 or people can come and go and visit different things there? Yes, we'll have programs. We'll have, there will be Native American uh, singers and storytellers. There's basket weaving lessons for kids. Then there's 
jewelry booth, uh, Native American jewelry, and there's Navajo fry bread food, which is and then the tacos they make with that that are delicious. And there'll be a lot of uh, booths of people from the Sierra Club and the Native Plant Society and Bosa Chica Land Trust, a lot of the uh, folks that are working to preserve natural resources and cultural resources in Orange County. So that, everybody, that's for your uh, for this Sunday to consider. Please do come. And we also, I want to, with the time remaining, and there's precious little, about the walks, Rebecca Robles, who is a descendant of the elder, who uh, helped found the organization, uh, a descendant of is uh, Lillian Robles. Lil- Lillian Robles. And so you, there will be on October 6th, everybody, an annual, it's an annual uh, ritual, a pre-Columbian look at Orange County, an opportunity for us to see the older, very real cultural dimension of what we've settled. And please break down all, I don't know if there's going to be up to eight different walks this year. Actually, it, uh, we drive to all these places. Okay. And, and then holds they hold ceremonies. Okay. How does that, so tell us what will happen on October 6th this well, year. Well, uh, the first will be at the uh, San Mateo State Beach and Campground. And this is the site of Panhe, which is a very important site to the Wanenu Ahashiman. And there will be a gathering of Native Americans from actually all over California and even some from outside the state. And uh, they will give talks and, and uh, have some ceremony and march down to where there's uh, a burial area and throw tobacco and prayers there. Tobacco? Yeah. Was tobacco grown here? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And it's it's used as... A, it's a ceremonial. Yeah, ceremonial. Right. Okay, and well, there be also one, and I'm going to quickly go through this. I'm so sorry to just feel like I'm reappropriating mm-hmm. and I'm reconquering. Well, you're asking questions that everybody probably wants I, you well, to I, ask. Yeah, there's a lot to ask. So in San Juan Capistrano, will mm-hmm. there be the Putuidum? Putuidum. Putuidum mm-hmm. there, then at the Genga the uh, the Ganga site at the Harbor Cove in Newport Bay that mm-hmm. will also be visited on yes. October sixth, mm-hmm. as well as the Bolsa Chica, Warner Avenue, and PCH sort of confluence there. Right. That will be a site, and then at Heron Point, north of S- the Seal Beach Boulevard, north of the Naval Weapons Station. And mm-hmm. how do I pronounce that <laughs> site? Do your best. Uh, I'm not going to. I can't. <laughs> it starts with an M. I can't say Motu Uchenyanya. Or something I'm, like that. So that Mot- was terrible. Mot- Motojinga, something like that. And then a gathering uh, place, uh, the Puvunga. Puvunga. Puvunga mm-hmm. at Cal State Long Beach campus. That's where, so. Yeah. So that will take place October sixth, eight thirty to four thirty. So people, where do they start? So they, they can, start at San Mateo State Beach. Right there, off of Cristanitas so Road. I need to put on the website for this podcast exactly the site people can go to so they can follow yeah. all of those. I'll so, send you a flyer. So, so the, the flyer with the link so everybody can know how to get started and carpool around sort of caravan yeah. in deference there. So I'm so sorry we didn't have nearly the time I wanted, but uh, I think the the wide open, wide-eyed questions have a lot for us to, to consider really deeply about what we don't give another thought to what we're living on top of right that yeah so i'm so glad for you to take the time to to go over this patricia 
You're welcome. Happy to be here. Okay, thank you. Well, my guest was Patricia Martz, anthropologist and founding board president of California Cultural Resource Preservation Alliance. That was my wrap. And next week, I'm going to have on Jeffrey Clayton. He's the executive director of the American Bail Coalition with a grounded analysis about what California did right and not so much with the law ending money bail in California. And the second guest will be Connor Evers, water policy whisperer of Southern California. And uh, just a little uh, just a little mention, uh, Sarah Selep, if you're listening, don't send the eighth request for me to interview Ann Coulter about her book. I don't deal in provocation on Ask a Leader. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.